Hey guys, welcome. We are continuing our series through Genesis this morning, and we're going to have a little bit of a hard-hitting message. And the reason for that is because the message is mainly a warning. It's a warning against sin, and sometimes we all need warnings. I don't know about you, but my mom was an expert at giving warnings when I was growing up. And so she had a story for everything to keep me from doing certain things. And so, for example, she told us this story about how she had a friend one time who ate a huge glob of peanut butter and choked to death on it. And so, to this day, I'll never take a spoon and eat a huge glob of peanut butter because I'm terrified. And she also told us the story of how she knew somebody who had tried to beat a train and kind of go through those arms that come down. And they had gone through and also gotten broadsided by the train and later died. And so I took those warnings to heart. I'm never going to try to eat a glob of peanut butter, and I'm never going to try to beat a train as it's going across the tracks. And what the Bible says about the entire Old Testament scripture is that its purpose is to give us instruction. And at times, that instruction comes in the form of a warning. And so, for example, in Romans 15, verse 4, It says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the purpose of the book of Genesis, as we get into these warning stories, is that we might be instructed, that we might learn from the faults and the failures of others. And what we see in these stories that we're going to look at this morning, is that sin is more destructive than we think. And so we're going to look about uh, at four truths about our sin this morning as we look at four different stories about sin. And the first one is that sin is beastly desire. So we're looking at the story of Cain and Abel to start. So Genesis chapter 4 And we're first going to be looking at verses 3 through 11. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So I don't know about you, but one of the first questions I had as I was reading through this text again this week was why was Abel's offering acceptable to God and Cain's offering was not acceptable to God? And we actually get a very clear answer to that question in the New Testament starting with Hebrews 11, verse 4. 
It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. So in other words, Abel trusted God. He took him at his word. And as a result of his trust in God, he brought God his very best from a heart of love. Now, by contrast, Cain did something very different. 1 John 3.12 colors in this picture of Cain for us. It says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So if Abel belonged to God, trusted in God, and followed God's desires for his life, Cain belonged to the evil one, Satan himself, in the sense that he listened to Satan's voice, the voice of the serpent, the same voice that Adam and Eve had listened to, and he listened to his own desires. And so he offered God an unacceptable sacrifice in the sense that he offered it begrudgingly. He did the bare minimum. He did what he had to do. And then God called him out for it. And what started out as sort of, we would see as an innocent error on his part, not sort of giving his best to God, turned into murderous rage toward his brother. Isn't that how sin always works? It starts with just a little step in the wrong direction. Something that we would see as innocent or not that big of a deal And it leads us to a place that we never thought we would be capable of going. In even the smallest act of sin is the seed of murder. And so something I tell my kids in order to illustrate this for them is I tell them that they have a choice between listening to their parents and listening to God or listening to the little green monster that lives down inside of them. And so I say, guys, you have this little green monster who lives down inside of you, and his name is Sin. And he's trying to convince you that disobeying mom and dad and disobeying God would be a good idea. And so they're picturing like this little green monster, like, oh, I kind of like little green monsters, kind of like a minion, except green, is that what you're meaning? And, and then I color it in for them, I said, except this little green monster is trying to kill you. It's trying to convince you to do things that dishonor God and dishonor your parents and actually will ruin your life. And so you can remember this little green monster illustration because I've thought if I wrote a book, this is how the book would start about the little green monster. You have a little green monster who lives down inside who's trying to convince you to commit suicide, right? Catchy, probably not the best kid's book, but memorable, right? And it's true. Our sin seems like something that lives down inside of us that we can sort of coddle, sort of feed it a little bit, and then innocently enough, we'll just sort of walk away unscathed. But the truth is, is that your sin, even the smallest sins, want to express themselves in a way that you would never intend them to at the beginning. The picture of this is is colored in later on in the same passage that I read from earlier in 1 John. It's still this discussion is going on about Cain, and in 1 John 3 verse 15... It says this, anyone who hates a brother is a murderer. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So you see what John is doing? He's saying, don't think, oh man, I'm just glad I'm not like Cain and I've never killed anybody. This is what you should think. I have that same murderous rage every day in my heart. When I get angry and hateful toward my spouse or towards my roommate or toward my friend or toward my brother or toward my sister, I've experienced that rage. And I know if it weren't for the law and the consequences that would come about because I killed somebody, I know that I am actually capable of this very thing that Cain is capable of. And so we get this picture of sin being a beastly desire in the sense that it's like a lion. It's crouching. We have this sinful tendency in us that is crouching and it will devour us if it is left unchecked. It will lead us to places that we never thought we would go. And because sin is a destructive evil, that ruins people's lives, that tears apart families, that creates wars, that is the central problem with the world. God hates sin. And so God says from Genesis to Revelation that sin deserves punishment. And we see this vividly illustrated in a story that we normally think of as a kid's story, but it is anything but a childish story. It turns out that the story of Noah and his ark is a story about God's wrath, his hatred, his just displeasure against sin. So we're looking at Genesis 6. We're kind of hopping all around. So it might be best if you just look up at the screens with me. Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. So many modern, especially Western people, have a huge problem with this. And the question begins to bubble up in our own souls, what gives God the right to wipe out the population of the world? But then we sort of have this contradictory desire in our own soul and that is that justice would be done on the earth people are crying out for justice the the injustice of racism the injustice of the violence on on the earth the injustice of war the injustice of politicians and we want 
everything to be made right. But in order for there to be this idea of injustice that we have in our minds, there has to be an idea of good. And that good can't just be your good or my good. It has to be a transcendent good. And for us to have understood that there is a transcendent good, there has to be a person who would have communicated that to us. And that person universally is called God. And there's only one universal God who has communicated himself to the world. And it is the God of the Bible. I would argue that it's only the God of Christianity, but Muslims and Jews also claim to believe this passage. So what we have in this passage is a historical record of the God who is there destroying planet Earth and all the inhabitants on that planet except for Noah and his family. So in order for us to have this idea of justice, we have to have God, and this is the only God that there is, so we're left with this problem, and we're still left with this question, What gives him the right to do it? And I think that's the real question we're asking. We don't really question his existence. We really question his right. And here's what he says. I am the creator of the ends of the earth. How dare you question me? In fact, the Bible gives this stark contrast. It says God is like the potter and we are like the clay. What right has the clay to say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Why have you done this? Now, can you imagine my kids, they love to play with Play-Doh, sitting at the counter. I hate when they play with Play-Doh. They're always sticking in each other's hair and eat it and, you know, spills all over the floor, sticks on on the furniture. But that's beside the point. They like like to play with Play-Doh. Can you imagine if they're playing with Play-Doh and they each decide that they're going to make sort of a self-portrait out of Play-Doh? So they kind of smash a head down and, and put a little smiley face on it and put little eyes on it and, and all that. And then they, they finish their self-portraits and they all decide sort of in unison to just destroy the self-portraits that they've made. Now, you might think, okay, like, you don't have to be so violent or whatever, but you wouldn't think, what an injustice! Why wouldn't you think it was an injustice? Because they are so far superior to the Play-Doh. A child has every right to destroy whatever they have made out of Play-Doh. And in a similar fashion, we have this really high view of ourselves. We think we're smart. We think we're sophisticated. We think we're educated. And we think we have rights before God. Here's the truth. God is far more superior to you than my kids are to Plato. You have no rights before God. Zero. You have disqualified yourself from rights because of your wickedness. This could also be said about you. That the wickedness of your own heart is great. And that you deserve to die. Here's what we should be astounded by in this passage. 
We should not be asking the question, what gives God the right to kill all these people? What we should be astounded by is that Noah found favor in God's sight. We should be astounded that God spared humanity at all. It doesn't say that Noah was perfect, but in the counsel of God's own will, he found favor in his sight. And Noah had the audacity to look out at the world around him. And as everyone was jeering at him and judging him, he had the audacity to believe that God had the right to destroy the earth and that he would actually do it. And so he built the ark. And here's what I'm saying to you. In this generation that questions the justice of God, have the audacity to trust him to come to him in faith, to believe in him. Because I've also got good news for you. So that's the bad news for us. God is a God of justice. But the good news is that sin is not the last word. This story of Noah and the ark continues. God does destroy the earth. God does save Noah and his family. And he makes this promise to Noah, called a covenant. And this is what he explains to Noah after he and his family get off the ark. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 15. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living thing of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we're introduced for the first time, certainly not the last time in the Bible, this idea of covenant. And what happens is God comes to Noah. He's fresh off being on the ark. Seen all of his friends destroyed by this flood. Them failing to trust God. Failing to believe in him. And he stands there and God comes to him and he says, I will never again destroy the earth. Which begs the question, how can God be both loving and just at the same time? And God begins to explain that to Noah and to his family by explaining to him what the sign of the covenant is we see into the very heart of God. He says, there's going to be a rainbow. That's the sign of the covenant. You might ask, what's significant about a rainbow? Yeah, sure, rainbows are beautiful, but is there anything significant about it? And the answer is, absolutely yes. So you imagine Noah having got off the ark There's still sort of this storm settling on the horizon. These 
ominous storm clouds. There's still some rain falling. On the opposite side, there's this sun that's shining. And the light is being sort of reflected and refracted off of this light. I don't really understand how that whole thing works. Some of you probably understand it better. But there's a rainbow in the clouds. And so we have this imagery of the storm, which throughout the Bible represents God's wrath and his judgment and his hatred of sin. So what God's saying in this rainbow is, I'm still a God of wrath. I'm still a God of judgment. And I still hate sin. And then we see light, this sunlight, which represents God's favor and God's love and his pleasure. And so the rainbow is where the wrath of God, his judgment, and his pleasure and his delight meet. And that's where we get the significance of the shape of the bow. So the word bow here actually literally means in Hebrew a battle bow. And so the picture that we have is of a bow and arrow cocked and aimed at heaven. And God is saying to us, I will not destroy the earth again because I am going to destroy myself. I'm going to take the punishment for you. I'm going to take the punishment for your sin and the sin of your offspring forever. And so what we actually get here is a picture of the cross of Jesus. You see, the cross is the place where the storm of God's wrath and the favor of his sunlight meet. God is saying at the cross when Jesus died, I hate sin this much. And he is also saying at the cross, I love you this much. You see, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in this way, the Son of God was taking the arrow from the bow into his heart. He was taking on the very flood of God's wrath. And so what God is prefiguring here with this bow is that Jesus would come and he would rescue us from our sin. And so here's the offer that I have for you this morning. Be like Noah. Believe God. Trust him. Flee from the just judgment of God against human sin, not by climbing onto the ark, but by climbing onto the cross in the person and the work of Jesus. Even though you will look foolish, just like Noah did, come running to Jesus. Put the full weight of your faith on him. Trust in him. Trust that your sin, yes, in fact does, even though it's very counterculture and unpopular, believe that your sin deserves punishment, but believe that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment in the cross. And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, and you will find all the rescue that your soul needs. So you would have thought, right? Such a beautiful picture of the love of God toward his people. 
would have then compelled them for future generations to cast aside their sin and live for his name. But that's not what happened. The story continues. A bunch of people who look a lot like us that show us that sin actually, even after such a miraculous rescue, keeps us complacent. We see this in the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, verses 4 through 9. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so immediately when you look at this, it doesn't look like the people of Babel were struggling with the sin of complacency. But on a second look, it's actually true that this was the reality. They looked like hard-working, industrious, urban Americans. They're building bricks, hard work, and they're building a skyscraper to reach the heavens. They are working hard. These are type A, achievement-oriented people. But the reason that I say it's complacency is because it was directly in contradiction to God's commandment to them. So you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, And God had commanded his people, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And so what are they doing? Instead of filling the earth and subduing it, they're saying, no, for the sake of our own name, we're going to stay in a city. We're going to make a name for ourselves. So there's this motivation of seeking their own glory, that babble. That's the nicest city in the world. It's amazing. You would definitely want to live there. They want to make a name for themselves. But they also want the comfort and the security of the city. See, spreading out would mean saying goodbye to people that they love. So they wanted to stay together. They didn't want to have to spread out. And so they decided like Adam and Eve, and like Cain, and like the wicked people on the earth in Noah's day, to instead of listening to God, to listen to their own desires, thinking that they were smarter than than God himself. And so it gets kind of funny. God looks down at this whole situation, and they think they're building this huge tower that's going to reach to the heavens, that they're going to be like God. 
And, and you get this picture of like the Trinity's like getting out some binoculars. I think there's something going on down on the earth. So there's this language, like, let's go down, like, so that we can see. Oh, yeah, that's cute. They are building a tower. This is what God thinks about our achievements. We look at our achievements, we look at all of our hard work, and like, look at us, we're amazing. God's like, what are you guys doing again? What's the insignificant thing you're spending your life on? What are you wasting your time doing now? And then God goes down and he forces them to do what they were unwilling to do. By confusing their languages, he makes it impossible for them to communicate with each other and finish this work, this progress that they were trying to complete. And he spreads them out over the face of the whole earth. Can you imagine how weird this would have been? All of a sudden, like, dad's speaking Swahili and mom's speaking German and you're speaking French, and you don't know what any of that means, and, and everybody's just spreading out all over the face of the earth. And we see that God's will is going to be done. His purpose stands. He will accomplish his purpose. And he is inviting us to listen to his commands and stay in line with his purpose and not to be complacent in that regard. And we begin to see ourselves in this. Except the primary command to us now, although the, the creation mandate is still there for us, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it, which God sort of forced our hand on and we're usually pretty good at, there's another command for us now. It's the command on the church to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And here's what our tendency is. Even though Salt City's history would indicate that we're a people who loves to see the glory of God spread and would go to all the nations to tell people about Jesus, here's what happens. We begin to think, wow, this is really a cool community. This is really neat. Like, I really like the people in my connection group. And even though, yes, 70 people moved from the state of Iowa gave up their homes and their lives and their jobs and moved here to be a part of bringing the gospel to the city instead of being sort of a mission-sending agency. Instead of that, let's sort of turn this thing into a country club. I don't ever want to leave my connection group. I don't want us to be about planting churches or be about world missions. I don't want to fill the earth and subdue it. Instead, let's make a name for ourselves and what I'm saying to you is this. May it never be so. May we be people who so love Jesus and so love the gospel and so love his fame and his glory and who are willing to put aside all of our comforts and all of the pleasures of this world and all of our money so that the next person and the next person and the next person and the next person can come to know, follow, and worship Jesus. Is that the mission of your life? Is that what you're all about? Because God would call us into that. And if we will not be obedient, we should stand in fear. Because his purpose will be done for this church. 
And I don't want him to have to force our hand or bring pain into our lives as a good father would bring discipline into his kids' lives. But rather, I would have us be a willing and obedient people. So let's ask God now that that would be the case, that in light of what he has done, he has saved us from the wrath of God. He has loved us, and now he is calling us out of our complacency to actually trust in him. What would it look like if we said yes to him? And we began to share the gospel with our coworkers, and we began to take our hands off our own life and said, anywhere you want me to go, God, that's where I want to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this hard word. God, our hearts are hard with sin. And so we need hard words to break up those rocks in our soul. And so thank you for revealing to us sort of the extent of our sin and the judgment it deserves and then healing us with your love and calling us on this great mission for you. And I ask God that as a church, we would respond. As individuals, we would respond, that you would show us where there's any wicked way in us, that we would turn away from that, turn back to your kingdom, turn away from our complacency, turn to your love and to your mission. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.